lecture was the uh, origins of Celtic spirituality. That's actually the title, which ends up sort of being Saints of Scotland, Ireland a lot. But but uh, strictly speaking, the Celtic Church includes uh, the British Isles, especially the uh, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and and then the peninsula of Brittany in in France. Uh, before that, of course, the uh, all of England, what, what is now England, was also Britain before the uh, Anglo-Saxon invasions. So the churches, the beginning, and uh, particularly to, we're talking about the modern Celtic countries, but its origins have you know have to do with this time when the Roman province is being overrun by the Anglo-Saxon invaders. The, uh, sorry, timeline. <coughs> The Celtic uh, Christianity is kind of a, actually now I was, we should start with sources and uh, there's so many books about Celtic Christianity that I couldn't possibly uh, bring even a good selection to show you because people are writing about it all the time. And this is evidence of sort of popularity of of Celtic Christianity as a sort of separate entity in itself. Um, Sometimes the uniqueness of Celtic Christianity is sometimes ascribed to its uh, pagan Celtic background. That somehow it uh, preserves this um, druidic way of looking at things or uh, sometimes to the national character of Celtic people. But uh, it's true that Celtic Christianity is attractive because it, in the West it is a unique type of Christianity um, as compared to the medieval uh, Western Christianity that we that we see developing, especially towards the, the later Middle Ages, but this uniqueness is not really due to uh, paganism or or to special Celtic personalities, but to um, the fact that the Celtic Church was produced uh, or kind of came into being during the flowering of uh, monasticism coming from the East, and the Celtic Church sort of uh, the people who missionized these areas, the missionaries were monks often, and they brought this uh, spirituality with them. And then what happens is that because we're at the time of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the uh, Celtic area becomes to some extent isolated from the rest of uh, the West by this these turmoil. And so the developments that happened uh, in Western Europe did not affect uh, the Celtic area, especially Ireland, as very much until much later. And historically, this, when we're talking about Celtic Christianity, we are talking usually about a time prior, uh, mostly to the f- 500s and 600s, or you know, St. Patrick the 400s, where. It's, it's isolated in time by the Viking invasions, which happened in the uh, late 700s and created a, a Viking control over Ireland from uh, about that body hundred till a thousand was when they were finally defeated by uh, Brian Borrow. But the, and when, when, uh, after that, the very soon after you have the Norman conquest. So, even though the history of Ireland goes on and it's part of the history of the medieval world, especially the Clunaic reform uh, movement becomes very prominent in Ireland after the uh, Norman conquest period. Well, actually even before with the 
St. Malachi, um, or St. Malachi, I guess as they call it. Uh, the, um, the special time when we talk about the Celtic Christianity, we're usually referring to this early period, and therefore a period reflecting uh, actually sort of this uh, a sort of island of orthodox spirit, monastic spirituality in uh, the western in the western world one of the, so the distinctions uh, that two things happen in the west that uh, give western christianity a different characteristic than celtic or eastern christianity and one of these is um, the pelagian controversy with saint augustine this is happening right at the same time as the missions uh, saint patrick is actually in ireland already and uh, kind of the beginnings of these of the church and Augustine's controversy with Pelagius is over the role of the free will and Pelagius was exaggerating uh, our free will, the ability of the free will saying that we didn't require divine grace Augustine exaggerates in the other direction and says that salvation only comes from divine grace and that man has no free will essentially that the that our ability to choose good is destroyed by the fall and so the only way that we uh, receive grace is by the active decision of God that certain people are saved through God's action, not through their own. And so, uh, as you might guess, St. Augustine was not uh, a great promoter of asceticism, but in fact, in a sense, created um, a kind of rejection of, of ascetic uh, theology. So in the East, you have the idea of the person, the asceticism of struggle, you know, to overcome the passions, to come closer to God. In in the Augustine's thinking, man is just is just a passive instrument. He, he and in fact he disliked um, this kind of asceticism as something that would make a person stand out. His vision of monasticism comes really from the Book of Acts, where it's just a community where you just fit into the community and don't uh, you know don't do anything that would be different from others. This theological background for the change in Western Christianity was implemented through later the, um, the work of, of St. Benedict. St. Benedict was in the 500s. He's an Orthodox uh, monastic saint. But he created a rule in which he emphasizes the role of the institution and, uh, again, passivity. There's no uh, sort of individual uh, effort here or individual uh, sort of ascetic exploits. It's really you just conform to the rule. And so this uh, fit in very nicely with Augustine's ideas that the individual's purposes in the, in the church was just to uh, sort of await the uh, kind of and salvation and then the sort of kind of a legalistic view of salvation and not an ascetic view, not that you don't so you're not needing to do efforts or you even shouldn't be making special efforts on your own. So therefore, in the monasticism, also you are just fitting in. You become uh, tied to your uh, to the monastery you go to and you stay in your place and don't do anything different from anyone else. And this um, type of monasticism didn't uh, spread in the West. It didn't catch hold in Ireland until uh, really after the Viking invasion. And even there, it wasn't uh, so much Benedictine monks as, uh, as the Cistercian, which is, in a way, the Cistercian. People say it, it's more, uh, more ascetical, which maybe made it more attractive to Irish uh, 
people than than the old Benedictine, but it's still it's a it's a branch of the Benedictine type of monasticism. So anyway, we're the period we're talking about is before all that uh, comes in to the, but is uh, just sort of beginning in the West, but not affecting the Celtic Church. The Celtic Church's origin, um, well, the first you know place that we'll. Several um, kind of important people. And, uh, okay, so one is um, okay down here in, in France. We have Martin of Tours. In Egypt, we have Anthony the Great, who's. Um, whose life was, was translated by Athanasius around 360. Martin of Tours uh, lived around 380s in, in France. And then another was um, John Cassian, who was a monk in uh, over in Egypt around 390s and actually left. Yeah, I, Tangled. Uh, left about 400 to come live in southern France. Three of these people, in a way, are uh, kind of very important for the uh, monastic movement as a whole in, in the early Christian church. The life of St. Anthony lived as a, as a hermit in the desert. St. Athanasius was the patriarch of, of Alexandria in Egypt, and he um, visited St. Anthony and he wrote a life a story about his life of biography. St. Athanasius was then deported to the West because of the uh, conflicts with, regarding the Arian controversy. And while there, his life, the life was translated into Latin and became widespread and what became one of the sort of favorite documents uh, in, the, in the Western Europe and also in the Celtic lands. St. Martin was a soldier who came and settled in, in France and was elected Bishop of Tours, but he lived uh, as an ascetic uh, monk outside the city and kind of, in a sense, is uh, a kind of central a kind of uh, figure for introducing this hermit type of monasticism into uh, the West, although he gathered disciples about him. John Cassian, when he comes back, he settles as a monk in southern France, but he starts to write books about his experiences in, in uh, Egypt, the institutes of uh, telling about the life, monastic life, and the conferences, w- recording conversations among the elders back in Egypt. One of the things that he he's living at the same time as this Pelagian controversy with Augustine, so in there he, uh, without mentioning Augustine, he sort of criticizes, uh, critiques Augustine's approach and, and uh, talks about synergia, some, the cooperation of free will and divine grace as a corrective to Augustine's reliance on a pre-de- a kind of predestination without any human uh, will involved in salvation. But these um, okay, people become important in France, in several, in, in, in the Celtic Church, in uh, several ways. One is that uh, we start with with Saint Patrick here in uh, the 300s. He's living somewhere on the coast. He's taken as a prisoner by the Irish uh, chief, one of the Irish kings. 
lives as a slave for many years here and learns to speak Irish or Gaelic. And then he's uh, instructed to go and es to escape, which he does. And he goes and becomes a monk in Gaul. Um, it's not clear that we we believe that he lived in Larens, which um, I forgot to mention St. Honoratus, uh, who established a, a kind of anchorite type uh, monasticism in southern France at the, at the place called Larens, L-E-R-I-N-S. And we think that uh, St. Patrick went there. And then there was another uh, place in the north called Auxerre. And here, the governor uh, of Auxerre named Germanus became a, a monk uh, and bishop. And he also uh, followed the, this monastic uh, type of life and established an important monastery in his city where he was bishop. St. Patrick was... Uh, was trained, uh, I believe, at these two monasteries, and then from Auxerre was sent back to Ireland in 432, where he uh, establishes a mission up in the northern Ireland. In his mission, um, you know, he spread, established bishops around the country, but we also hear that he established monasteries and convents, and they, he talks about uh, the monks and nuns that he. Um, that were growing the church, not just the people who were being converted to Christianity, but they were also embracing the monastic life. So right at the beginning in Ireland, we have someone coming right out of this uh, sort of monastic movement coming out of, of the east into, uh, into Gaul and then being brought up here. We had uh, around the same time another uh, young man named Ninian who travels down to, to visit with Martin of Tours and actually in the, he's a little earlier, actually in the 390s, um, he comes to uh, what was then the northern corner of the province of, Roman province of Britain, and establishes a monastery, but uh, what was, became known as uh, Candida Casa, or the White House, because it was a, a white um, plastered uh, church kind of similar to what uh, Candida Casa that uh, St. Martin had it in Tours. But later the Anglo-Saxons called it Whithorn Monastery. And this monastery, well, first uh, St. Uh, Ninian is, is uh, he's converting the uh, people around this area, the southern Picts. Uh, but after his death, the monastery becomes known as the Great Monastery and it becomes a, a kind of a school for the uh, for the ch the church in this area and so and actually a lot of uh, Irish people traveled to that to Whithorn and were students there and then returned as monks uh, back to to uh, Ireland and to establish their own monasteries and schools <coughs> St. Uh, Germanus is also, uh, I mentioned him down here with Auxerre. He also travels into uh, Britain several times to fight against the uh, Pelagian heresy in Britain. And when, while he's there, one of the, uh, the last time he meets uh, St. Iltud, who was a soldier from Brittany, who decides to become a monk. This is during the time 
of the beginnings of the Anglo-Saxon invasions, and he establishes also a school, uh, a monastery, which becomes a school down in, in southern Wales. The uh, spirituality of the Celtic Church is is this uh, monastic spirituality that we talked about, but the Celtic Church does have certain peculiarities that you don't find so much in Egyptian and uh, let's say Palestinian monasticism and one of these is um, a focus on education usually uh, Egyptian monks were fleeing the world and they you know in fact some some sense kind of uh, you know renounced education almost as as well Uh, a lot of the monks were simple people there wasn't uh, a big um, kind of focus on that in in Britain, and it, it there was because one of the things that was happening was that the Roman province was being uh, invaded here by the Anglo-Saxons, and people places were being destroyed. So over in Wales, one of the things that the, the monks did was, uh, in a sense, they were not you know preserving uh, knowledge for the sake of, of reading the scriptures and the church fathers, but also uh, the, the liturgical language was Latin, and they were in a country now, the uh, you know, a lot of Europe, Western Europe, okay, the, the, have the modern languages, French, Spanish, Italian. They're called the Romance languages for a reason. The Roman languages, they're, they're all derivatives of Latin because the people spoke Latin, and it's just it's kind of like peasant Latin of their region. Uh, Wales, however, is Welsh is not a Romance language. Welsh is a Celtic language, which means that uh, the people who were refugees from the um, Anglo-Saxon invasions, you know, their language when they was not uh, Latin, even though they, they used Latin in the province, they were speaking. Uh, the Celtic language from that was there before the Romans arrived. This meant that since the church uh, used Latin in the services and in the uh, scriptures and church fathers were all written in Latin, that if you were going to understand what any of this meant, I mean, if you're going to be able to understand what this priest was saying in the service or what the gospel was about, you had to know this difficult language. It was this oh. So education was important because as the people are fleeing and they're you know trying to uh, preserve church life in this in this uh, mountainous area of Wales, part of what had to be preserved in order for uh, church life to be preserved is the knowledge of Latin. So the monastery is focused on scholarship, and and in some ways, uh, what seems strange to us, uh, the knowledge of Latin meant also preserving the knowledge of, of Latin literature in general. So uh, the, the, you have these abbots, you know, these, these ascetical monks who are studying Virgil and uh, I guess uh, what's, uh, Cicero. And, you know, they, they uh, become very fond of these classical Latin authors. And it's just hard to imagine, you know, Anthony the Great out reading Homer or something like that. But, but if, uh, I suppose if, you know, the Greek language were being wiped out, I guess you'd have uh, monks doing that too. But but that's one of the, the odd things is that uh, you know they, the monks become famous not only for their asceticism but also for their knowledge of, of uh, not only classical Latin but mathematics and all different kinds of subjects that we would just 
think of as being quite separate. In in Ireland, this also uh, has some, uh, a similar thing happens, but for a different reason. Of course, they are not, um, you know, people, the church was not refugees in Ireland. They were converting a uh, pagan society. But this was a society that, and it's an interesting uh, thing because it's one of the few countries where Christianization did not mean Romanization. It was not never never conquered by the Roman Empire. And so the, the pagan civilization that was in Ireland actually remained intact and um, was Christianized sort of in its own state. And one of the things about Irish uh, civilization was that it was a very educated. They had, uh, you know, they had their uh, priests, the Druids, and they had uh, their, their lawyer, judges, lawyers, and and then also uh, bards, people who were uh, would learn sort of the the songs and the histories, and so. And they had a, a system whereby people in each area would, um, you know, send some of their children to go educated, be educated for these different professions. And these professions were prestigious. So, you know, it wasn't uh, something that was uh, seen as bad. You got to send a certain number of children to go. So there were schools around Ireland where you, you know, certain young children would be sent and they would go live at the schools. They'd be trained in this subjects and then they would become, you know, either one of these things. Well, when the Christianization took place, one of the things that happened is you had, well, you had the bishops, uh, but then the bishops established uh, schools and and monasteries. And the monasteries be, sort of became the schools. And so the one of the, the striking features about uh, particularly Irish monasticism is that you, you really you have a few people who left the world to go become monks. But most of the saints that you read about actually were sent to the monasteries as children, or sent sent to be. Uh, and first, they're not usually actually sent directly to monasteries. I should say that they were sent to be. Uh, this is another uh, Celtic feature: is the idea of the foster foster parent. And uh, of course, here we have foster parents for you know if you do something bad uh, as a parent you know your kids will get taken away and sent to foster parents but but uh, in Celtic society it wasn't a punishment this was uh, something good you know that you would uh, send your children to a foster parent to be in a sense like an apprentice to be raised a certain way so uh, a lot of our saints were sent to go live with bishops or nuns or priests and th- as children and then they would uh, a certain age be sent to the monasteries and what's interesting is that uh, let's say unlike the Benedictine monastery where you'd be sent to your monastery you'd be in a monastery and then that would be it you know you'd just stay in that monastery for the rest of your life the Celtic uh, monasteries functioned really like schools or like almost like what we are seminaries it says that you would go there so you'd go from your foster parent they go they send you to the monastery and then you'd be there for a while, and then it would end. You'd be at that monastery basically for a set time, and the um, it would end with ordination. Usually, it seems like they would be a certain a certain place, and then they would be ordained deacon, let's say, and then they'd go somewhere else, and then they'd be ordained priest there, and then they'd go, then like immediately leave. So it's it's uh, quite different, you know, than our experience where 
uh, somebody's going into you know a monastery to live at the monastery, these were really uh, seen as schools training training that you would be there for your time, and then you were going to then you would go, and the uh, monasteries often when they talk about the, the number of students there. Uh, some of the, the larger monasteries are they mentioned like 3,000 students. So this is how uh, Ireland, you know, became Christianized so quickly. Is that once uh, you're sending, you know, literally thousands of people as children to go study at these at the monasteries, uh, you know, Christian faith and uh, people being prepared to be clergy, you know, so you have a, a large number of people being trained. Right from the beginning, really, it seems that uh, because there already existed this whole system in uh, Gaelic society, that that as uh, Saint Patrick, when Saint Patrick Christianized them, that that's, that system just kept going, but now uh, turned over into the into uh, you know the service of of Christ. So either you know either either to be monks or to be bishops or priests or so on. And often that they went, that went together. Okay, I did mention. Um, okay, I've mentioned uh, Saint Ninian, Saint Iltud. There's um, several people that that went to to Whithorn after Saint Ninian. One was a uh, king named Enda over in Ireland here, who was a young king. This is one of the few people who actually is like, but we a conventional con, you know conversion to monastic life. He was going to be married, but uh, his fiancée died, so he decided to be, his, his sister was an abbess, and he decided to become a monk. So he studied, went to, to the great monastery at Whithorn, and then came back and became a hermit out here on, uh, I think, the Iran Islands. So, and, th- and then his, his uh, monastery became a school that many people went to themselves. Another uh, person was uh, Finian of Moville from up here, kind of went over to there and then came back and established the uh, school at Moville. More famous than this, um, than these two, though, is another Finian, uh, Finian of Clonard, who was studied over in in Wales with the, one of the disciples of Saint Iltud. Saint Iltud had uh, lots of famous disciples. Actually, one was one Cadoc, uh, the Wise. You also probably heard of Gildas the Wise, who wrote on the destruction of uh, Britain in the 530s. He was also a disciple of, of Saint Iltud, who was uh, around the same time as Saint Cadoc. And then Saint David of Wales, you may know also <coughs> here. And some people you may not know, Samson of Dole and uh, Paul Aurelianus were came from here, and they were missionaries to uh, to Brittany, and they lived as hermits. Uh, Paul Aurelianus being made a bishop, but then after he converted his district to Christianity, he went to back. He uh, went out to live as a hermit again and stopped. Yes. These are um, there. These two are in the 500s. Uh, Saint Iltud. Uh, remember, he becomes uh, with Saint Germanus in the late 400s. He kind of lives into the early 500s. Saint Caddoc, um early 500s, and Finian is, goes and his studies with uh, Caddoc and probably with Gildas. And this is the time when the uh, Anglo-Saxon is 
the split the Anglo-Saxons are in the east and the Britons are trying to hold out in the west. But Finian, uh, one of the things we see in Gildas's book, I mean, it's usually quoted for its history of the Anglo-Saxon conquest, but it's actually uh, has a lot to do with his critique of British society. And he, he's very critical of the uh, kings, but also extremely critical of the bishops. And Gildas holds up the ideal of the uh, of the of the monastery and the and the monks who are uh, living, you know ascetical lives unlike the worldly bishops and he his ideal is, is a monastery separate from the bishops so the monastery is ruled by priests uh, not by priestly abbots not by bishop abbots <coughs> and it's interesting when uh, in, in, in uh, Ireland with Patrick originally the monasteries were centered on the bishops but when St. Finian comes back uh, although this, it's Thought that he's a, uh, some this debate. That's one of the one of the uh, frustrating things about doing work in this uh, Celtic field here is that you know almost every little thing uh, that you know is uh, debated by different scholars. So sometimes the, like the dates, you know, you're looking especially in these Celtic saints, you're trying to find out when Saint David of Wales lived. Well, every time you look at a different book, you're going to find a different time. You know that nobody seems to be able to pick the same dates. But anyhow, it's, some people believe that he was a bishop. Some don't. But he uh, went and he founded a, a monastery here. And it was called Clonard. And Clonard was one of those uh, ones with 3,000 students where he uh, you know, got all these people. And the, uh, people, the, uh, his students, though, what is interesting is that he doesn't, none of them become bishops. Or at least the ones that were the famous ones. They are all the, the, a lot of a lot of famous saints come out of his his school, but they all are um, priests, you know, they, and they become abbots of, of monasteries. So there's like a, a break here in, in the, from the focus of uh, the strong connection with the, you know, the, the monastery as a something connected to the bishop, to the monastery as a as something independent. Uh, from the from the bishop, uh, not that it's against the bishop, but it's but it's it's uh, it's its own thing now, and that's actually much more similar. I mean, uh, Saint Anthony's monastery wasn't connected to a bishop. He wasn't a bishop. He was, uh, you know, a, a lay person who went out and lived in the desert. And uh, that's true of most of our you know monks in the East, as they were, uh, you know, desert dwelling hermits, not bishops establishing some kind of diocesan. Uh, monastery or school so in that sense it becomes uh, more what we're familiar with some of the well I should uh, I've kind of not mentioned uh, St. Bridget was was actually a kind of disciple of of Patrick but uh, for St. Finian the famous ones you'll know is uh, St. Columba um, who was um, actually from the north here who goes to Clonard and then uh, eventually goes over into Scotland and establishes the monastery of Iona, from which the uh, there's the missionary, you know, the, the missionary work into Scotland takes place. But he um, mostly works in Western Scotland, and then also here uh, Saint Kenneth comes here, although Kenneth earlier had gone over to study with St. Caddock as well. Then you have uh, St. Comgall, and who establishes a great uh, school up here in Bangor, 
and uh, Bangor is also is one of those is that uh, I think the second another of the big schools where thousands of people are studying. And uh, out of Bangor, we later have St. Columbanus, who's different from St. Columba. He's uh, in the 600s, and he goes over to um, to uh, to France and studies on, kind of goes up, founds monasteries kind of on the border near Switzerland, uh, travels up St. Gauls in Switzerland, was established by his disciple, and then down into Italy to try to convert the Lombards from from Arianism. He was firstly, though, famous as a great scholar, and he was famous for his knowledge of Greek. Actually, here you think think of the wilds of Ireland, but you know, in the 500s. But there they are; they're studying Greek. And uh, he goes off, and he does. That's, so this is another characteristic of uh, of Celtic monasticism that's absent from. Uh, you know, from our, let's say, Eastern asceticism. You don't really, in Eastern asceticism, people are going off to the desert for asceticism. They're not, the idea that they would be missionaries, I mean, sometimes they might be, but that's not necessarily connected. Whereas um, the, you know, this big emphasis of the, school, of the monasteries are, you know, the education and, you know, that the, that the, that the monk should be a scholar, but also that, that he should then leave and go be a missionary somewhere that God would call him. So um, St. Columba founds a number of, of monasteries in Ireland, but then he goes off to live in Iona, you know, to go be away from his own country to be doing work away. Um, Saint, uh, it's interesting, about St. Kenneth and Comgall also uh, show up at Iona visiting uh, visiting St. Columba, and they go off into the east. It's interesting. Uh, within Ireland, there are different kinds of people that live there, and the northern Scotland was mostly inhabited by a people called the Picts, and they have a different language than the... <coughs> they're both Celtic, but they're different than the people in uh, western Scotland who were really Irish, Irish uh, colonists. But uh, in Ireland itself, Northern Ireland had an area that was settled by a, a kind of Pictish people as well. And St. Comgall and St. Kenneth are Irish Picts. And they go off um, and they do work. So St. Comgall has his, his school here. But he uh, comes over, actually for, I'll tell you another one, but Kenneth uh, is being Pictish, actually works over here in the east. And he's called the Apostle to Fife because of that. St. Congle, who's here in Bangor, you know, he, who had Columbanus as a student, he also has another student you've probably never heard of, but his name is Malawag. And um, he's Pictish also, and he goes over into eastern Scotland, and he uh, established monasteries, and there's actually a stone where he used to go and, and uh, pray up on top of this pillar on uh, one of the hill forts over there, Kind of like our uh, stylite saints, like Simeon and the stylite, something you would think that's peculiar to to uh, Eastern Orthodox, but I mean, in this that, that even that uh, was carried over into the into the West. <coughs>